This coming week, uh, we're going to celebrate Christmas. It's a season of good news and great joy. As Christians, we celebrate that Christ Jesus came into the world. At the gym last week, the ladies wanted to exercise to carols. I was doubtful about the appropriateness of that, but uh, not one of those carols mentioned Jesus as a baby or as a man, let alone as God. Their favourite carol was Ginger Bell Rock. As Christians, we love to hear Matthew and Luke's account of Jesus being born as a baby in Bethlehem to the Virgin Mary. These gospel accounts are the fulfilment of Old Testament prophecies, as Shem detailed last week. It's not just a story for children. It is a detailed fulfilment of scripture dating back from two and a half thousand years ago, back to the fall in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. Many of us as Christians, however, who profess to be Christians, like to keep Jesus as a baby in a manger. We do so because a baby in a manger, after we've ooed and aahed a little bit, doesn't put too much claim on your life. So there's probably no more appropriate passage of scripture to consider this Sunday morning before Christmas than John 1, 14 to 18. We read, the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received, grace upon grace. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who was at the Father's side, he has made him known. This word we saw last week was in the beginning, was with God and was God. This week the word becomes flesh and dwells in the midst of his creation. We know the word is the name that John gave to Jesus. Seeing Jesus in all of his glory, full of grace and truth, and receiving from his fullness grace upon grace, surely this must put on us an all-encompassing claim to your life. But this is the reason why the world increasingly refuses to acknowledge Jesus in any way. Baby in a manger or the Son of God came, coming to save mankind from their sins. People don't want to be under obligation to a God who caused the shots and who would rule over them. That's why Queen Elizabeth II has such a, had a, such a long reign as sovereign, even over us Australians. The Republican movement has never got a go on in Australia because the Queen doesn't actually rule over us or tell us what to do. To us, she's a tourist attraction. We come out to look at her every so many years when she puts in an appearance here in Australia. And the world says, if there is a God, however you think of him, demands more than that, then we won't have it. And that is how it really has been right back to the days of Adam and Eve. John, like the other disciples, spent three to three and a half years with Jesus. And what he learnt about Jesus over those 
years is so astounding, so overwhelming to him that he blurts it out that three years of accumulated understanding, knowledge that he's come to, he blurts that out in the first three verses of his gospel. He can't contain this astounding truth to himself. He just has to reveal it and he does it as quickly as he can. We looked at it last week. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. This person, Jesus, whom John and the other disciples spent three years with, it slowly dawned in their hearts and minds that he was God who created the heavens and the earth and all that they contain. This was absolutely astounding. It's staggering truth. And so John did what we all do when we come to knowledge of such great and amazing things. We blurt it out to all who were here. That's what we do. We learn some amazing news and we run around telling everybody we can about it. But not only that, in verse 14, John has more astounding truth to add. The word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. The disciples come to understand that he was God, but what they were equally sure of, that he was in the flesh. He was a man. The creator God came and dwelt amongst them, and they saw that he was like them. The Gospels tell us that he was born into the world by a human mother. He had to be nurtured and cared for in a family as a child. He grew in strength and wisdom and stature. He learned obedience through suffering. He ate and he drank. He got thirsty, hungry and weak. He got tired and he had to rest and sleep. He marveled at things. He became troubled in his soul and he got sorrowful even under death. He loved, he got angry, he experienced all the emotions that we do. He was truly a man. What John and the Gospel writers are doing is reporting what they saw and heard. They are reporting the facts that they encountered in those three years that they lived with him in a very intimate way. Each account is different because they are seen through different eyes by different personalities, but they all come to the same conclusion that John did, that Jesus was the creator God come to earth in human flesh. This gospel that we're reading does not name John as the writer, but it does describe him as the disciple that Jesus loved. And we know that this is a description of John. At the Last Supper, where all the disciples were laying back around the table, eating a final meal with Jesus, John lay his head on Jesus' chest. I don't know about you, but I go, wow, that's crazy, absolutely crazy. But the truth is, we don't live that way. We don't eat the way they eat. We don't even interact the way that they did. I knew a missionary, a close family friend who went out to Mali in Africa. And all the Western missionaries, when they went out into the field, took tents, camp beds, sleeping bags, camp ovens, most of the trappings of Western lifestyle, as we do when we go camping. He heard that the local Mali men were going to go bush 
and he wanted to go with them. And they did everything they could to dissuade him. But he insisted and they said he could only go if he travelled light and carried the things that they travelled with, which was a spear and a water bag, a skin water bag. That was it. He took the skin water bag and that was it with the clothes that he wore. He didn't carry a spear because he was useless with it. Overnight, after work, walking all day, they lit a little fire, just a tiny little fire, not a great big campfire like we like, just a tiny little fire. And they cooked whatever they encountered and managed to catch and kill on the day's walk. If they got nothing, they went hungry. The 10 men slept in the dirt on the ground with their feet angled in towards the fire. And if it got really close, they drew closer to the fire and obviously towards each other. And they become very happy of the warmth of each other's bodies to keep warm. Nighttime temperature in the desert landscape gets very low and our missionary friend become very will willing to cuddle up to these Mali warriors. No other Westerner had ever done it, but he was able to relate to them in a way that no one else was able to relate because he lived the way they lived and by doing so, he impacted their lives like no other Westerner ever did with the gospel. This is how Jesus lived with his disciples. The astounding thing is that Jesus didn't come from a comfortable Western lifestyle as we know it. He came from the unimaginable glory of heaven that is totally incomprehensible to us. Direct from the presence of God the Father, where thousands upon thousands, innumerable angels are worshipping him. And he came to the dirty, dusty streets and roads of Roman-occupied Palestine, into the midst of unlearned fishermen, sinners and tax collectors. When we read the Bible, we're not to judge other societies on how they live. We're not to judge the details of the gospel by our Western way of life. Can you just imagine yourself laying back your head on the chest of the creator of the world? I would so love to do that, to be able to do that, but it is so foreign to me. Even to think that anybody would do it. But this is the life the disciples had with Jesus. They lived their lives intimately with him. It's very important that what we're reading in the Gospels, we understand as eyewitness accounts of the disciples' interaction with Jesus and how he lived and related to people on this insignificant speck of dust that we call Earth. This is a historical record that stands the test of time against any other record of history. However, as we live in this fallen world, we soon understand that many people think that we Christians are living in la-la land. We've lost our reason. We discount modern scientific understanding and knowledge. We do this because we are insanely biased and prejudiced by blind faith. We begin to struggle with our faith when we're questioned as to our sanity and reasonableness, don't we? We're judged to be unenlightened, foolish, infantile, because we discount this modern, enlightened worldview that there is no God. 
and that even if this Jesus existed, he was just a marvellous thinker of his time, like many other great thinkers down through time. Sure, the Sermon on the Mount is a great way to live, but there are as <coughs> many other great philosophies out there which you can live by. If we place more importance on Jesus than that, that he is more than that, more than just one of many influential men down through the centuries, then we're just being biased and prejudiced. It's tempting just to go for a quick answer, isn't it? And we can turn to a man like Lee Strobel, who was a graduate from Harvard Law School, a investigative uh, journalist and an atheist. His wife began to show interest in Christianity, which was abhorrent to him. You've probably seen the movie. He decided to use his investigative skills with his qualifications in the law and its unbiased approach to facts to tear to pieces the gospel accounts of Jesus' resurrection. He was an angry, abusive atheist. But after studying all the gospel eyewitness accounts of Jesus' resurrection with his lawyer's mindset, he had to conclude from an unbiased legal perspective that the resurrection of Jesus was proved beyond doubt. What do we conclude when presented with the message of the gospel? Do you believe or do you border on and fall into unbelief? That's the two reactions, belief, unbelief. Is the gospel story the truth or is it absolute rubbish? Are Christians biased and prejudiced or is that the real condition of unbelievers? What we see in the gospel account is that the rulers and religious leaders of the Jews were biased and prejudiced against Jesus. He came unto his own, but his own received him not. The Jewish leaders were antagonistic to Jesus because he undermined their authority. He called them out for their hypocrisy and he showed them up as lacking understanding of what their own scriptures actually said. They were furious. They stirred up the crowd to call for Jesus' death, even though there was no cause to put him to death. He was an innocent man. The only thing he'd done was reveal them as frauds. Pilate saw that Jesus was an innocent man and he tried to get the Jewish leaders and their followers to see this, but they refused. He's pleading with them and they become more confirmed in their violent bias and unreasoning prejudice against Jesus. The fact is bias and prejudice is a characteristic of unbelief. The problem is unbelief does not stop at bias and prejudice. Unbelief is not just satisfied with rejecting the message of the gospel. It wants to stamp it out completely. This is why they wanted to put Jesus to death. This is why the church has been persecuted down through the ages. If you're a person who is open in your faith, the world will persecute you. Your faith will be used against you. The world can't physically kill Jesus a second time. He has returned to heaven, but it is successfully removing him total from Christmas celebrations today, just as it, 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 the world is removing him from Easter celebrations. 
It is killing the story told in the Gospels of his incarnate birth, his atoning death, and his victory over sin and his resurrection. By stealth, the world is taking away our right to celebrate Jesus and to worship him. Unbelievers will label you as closed in your thinking. Unbelievers want free thinkers. We are told we are biased, held captive to old religious traditions which we have inherited. Unbelievers, we are told, are open, detached, dispassionate, scientific, reasonable in outlook. But are unbelievers open, detached, dispassionate, reasonable in outlook? What are unbelievers doing when they reject the gospel? They are rejecting facts. They are, in fact, being unreasonable. They're rejecting the fact that Jesus fulfilled all the prophecies written about him hundreds and even thousands of years before. They're rejecting all the recorded witness, eyewitness accounts of the disciples and countless other people. They are denying the Bible. Actually, in their denying the Bible, they are actually denying the very principles on which they base their understanding of the world and world history. Eyewitness accounts. That is how biased and prejudiced the world is. What can you actually say against the message of the gospel? What is there to object to about Jesus? A young man working as a carpenter in Palestine at 30, beginning to preach. What's lacking in him? What's wrong with him? Here he is. He's healing people. He's talking to outcasts. He's eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. What have you got against him? Reading his teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, what's wrong with telling you to be poor in spirit? If we are all poor in spirit, there would be no international problems. No one, country or nation, would be trying to assert themselves over anybody else. There would be no conflicts, no wars. What's wrong with the teaching that says, blessed are the poor peacemakers, blessed are they that mourn, Blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness. What is wrong with Jesus' attitude to murder and adultery? What's wrong with the Ten Commandments that he upholds? You shall not kill. You shall not steal. You shall not falsely testify, lie, covet your neighbour's wife or possessions. What an amazing world we'd live in if everybody followed Jesus' teaching. Nobody lied, stole, killed, coveted, slandered, committed adultery. Everybody honoured their parents, put others before themselves. What's wrong with Jesus' teaching? What's wrong with God's command? Consider the great message of salvation. The gospel tells us that God felt sorry for men and women in sin and the trouble and strife, heartache and pain that they brought upon themselves by rejecting him not only as their creator, but as their Lord. The one who made them has sovereign claim upon them, the one who can tell them how to best live life and get out of life fullness, all the blessings and joys that can be had to live the way that he designed them to live. John 3.16 tells us, 
God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What's so wrong with God wanting to fix his broken creation? What's wrong with God providing the means, his own son, to fix it? Jesus said to God the Father, here I am, send me. He humbled himself. He took upon him the form of a servant. He humbled himself even further, setting his face towards Jerusalem and death upon the cross. Jesus said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Galatians 2.20 says that he loved me and gave himself for me. What's so wrong about Jesus humbling himself, leaving the glory of heaven, coming to this earth, going about doing good, then saving the lost by dying for them in their place, paying the penalty for their sins? Who is it that is closed in their thinking? Who is it that is biased and prejudiced? It is the unbeliever. It is the one who has denied that there is a God. It is the one who has rejected Jesus and what he's done to save them from their sins by his atoning death upon the cross. Be confident in what we believe as Christians. Why were the disciples so confident in their faith? Our reading tells us he dwelt amongst them and that they had seen his glory. To understand the glory that the disciples saw, we need to understand what it means that he, Christ, dwelt amongst them. This word dwelt is actually the word he tabernacled amongst them. Now we know the tabernacle was the tent of meeting which the Israelites built and carried around with them throughout their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Exodus 40, verses 34 to 38, tells us that when Moses finished working on the tabernacle, a cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The cloud of the Lord was on it by day and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all the days of their journey. The Israelites would wake up in the morning and they'd go outside their tents and they'd look towards the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. If the cloud of God's presence remained on it, they would stay where they were. If God's presence rose from it, they would pack it up in their own tents and they would follow God's presence in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He never departed from them. Now that is an extraordinary constant reminder of God. A pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. Despite that, the Israelites, during their 40-year journey through the wilderness, they rebelled against God in their whinging, their whining, their complaining. And as they came to the promised land, they grew faint in heart, afraid of the people in the land. And that was while God's presence was visibly, physically, so constantly with them, all the time. Despite the such great signs of God's presence and his amazing provision for them, provision of quail and manna for them daily throughout 40 years, they still doubted. What a shocking, shocking sin unbelief is. 
Jesus' tabernacling with his disciples meant that his glory was very evident to them also. But it took all of that three and a half years, plus the gift of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, before they came to rock-solid faith. Jesus' glory dawned on them over time. At his baptism, when the Holy Spirit came upon him and God declared, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The whole book of John is a revelation of God's glory in Jesus. All of his miracles, the healings that took place, the healings of the sick, the raising of the dead, the calming of the storms, his claims, his authority of teaching, his death, his resurrection, his appearing to his disciples in the upper room, all show his glory as God. Romans 1 verses 19 and 20 tell us that all mankind is without excuse because God has made plain to all his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature in the things that have been made. But do you remember doubting Thomas in John chapter 20 verse 24? The disciples told Thomas that Jesus had risen from the dead. He said, unless I can put my fingers in the nail prints on his hand and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, Jesus appeared in the upper room to the disciples and he said to Thomas, put your fingers in my hands and put your hand in my side. Thomas answered him by saying, my Lord, my God. Jesus said, you believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believed. There was never another man like Jesus. John 7 records that officers were sent to arrest Jesus and they returned empty-handed. And when asked why by the authorities, they said, never has another man spoken like this man. Even the Roman Officers recognised it. The centurion who stood guard over the cross and watched Jesus die on the cross, as he had probably done countless others, he exclaimed, truly this man was the Son of God. Jesus' glory as the Son of God was fully on display to all who could see When John says we saw his glory, he's not talking about a quick glance at Jesus or even a one-off intense experience with Jesus. Some people think that John might be making a reference here to when he and Peter with James saw Jesus transfigured with Moses and Elijah. That was an amazing experience. But John incredibly never mentions it in any of his writings in his gospel, in the letters, or in the book of Revelation. John gazed intently into the face of Jesus for three and a half years and everything he saw was so glorious he didn't even have to write about the transfiguration. Jesus' glory is marked by the fact, as we go on to read, that he is full of grace and truth. Verse 16 says, and from his fullness we have all received. Just think about that. 
from his fullness we have all received. Now, as I said before, to lay your head upon Jesus' chest would be an amazing thing. But how much more to receive from his fullness? This is something that every believer receives. It is speaking of a continual overflow of grace from Jesus to us. Grace and truth are the marks of all true Christians, or they should be. But often, they're not. One commentator said that we do have a tendency to lean towards one or the other. But it's not half grace and half truth. It's not some days of grace and some days of truth. It's 100% grace and truth all the time. Grace people are pleasant to be around. They're pretty easygoing. They cut you a lot of slack. They accept you for who you are. They don't make demands upon you. But grace people without truth are not truly being gracious. They are being nice and accommodating, but do they really love you or are they themselves just wanting to be liked and loved? Affirming you and being full of grace is not the same thing. Truth people have principles and convictions, things we admire. They believe in right and wrong and they set standards. They speak out against injustice, oppression and evil. They articulate. But without grace, truth can be belligerent. They're quick to make decisions, quick to make judgments. Often they make life difficult for themselves and for others. Loyal to a cause but not loyal to you. A grace person wants to be loved, basically at any cost. A truth person wants to be right at any cost, and they don't care if they're loved or not. See how easy we can get this wrong and lean one way or the other? And if we're truthful, we often do. But Jesus was full of grace and truth. You get that slide? Jesus was all grace in seeking the outcast, the lost, eating with sinners and tax collectors, welcoming little children, healing the sick, the lame, the blind, saving the thief on the cross in the last hours of his life. Jesus was all truth in condemning the religious leaders for being liars and hypocrites. He talked more about hell than he did about heaven. He called his followers to take up their cross and to follow him. He set standards, he obeyed the law, and he demanded everything from his followers, even their lives. He demands total commitment. Jesus didn't just come to give us an, an example of grace and truth. He saved us in grace and truth. Jesus saves us and makes us right with God, and then God says, I want you to be like my son. We desperately need grace in our life. Jesus says, come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. How many of us have come to the end of this year weary and heavy laden? We don't have to sort ourselves up, clean up our act. We can come just as we are, tired, heavy laden, broken, in pain, and we will receive rest. We who have lived immoral lives, addicted, rebelliously squandered our lives, will be welcomed into the arms of our loving Father. 
we also desperately need truth in our life. John 8, 34 says, I tell you the truth. Anyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Romans tells us the wages of sin is death. We need somebody to tell us the truth. We feel guilty. We are guilty. We are not okay. We need help. The wages of sin is death. That is the truth. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And John 8.36, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. That is grace. In Colossians 2 verses 13, we see truth and grace. And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, now that's truth, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That's grace. Without truth, there is no grace. And truth must be told with grace. God confronts us with truth convicting us of the depravity and severity of our sins. He does that in verse 17 of our reading. It says, the law was given through Moses. The law shows us how far short we fall from God's standard of loving him with all of our heart, mind, soul and strength. Jesus makes it very clear to the Jews and to us, it's not all about our outward displays, our physical actions that count. It's about what's going on in our innermost being that he looks at and judges. The heart, the mind, the soul. We dishonour our parents, murder, commit adultery in our hearts, even if we don't do it physically. The truth is brutal. Grace is astounding. Made alive with Christ, forgiven all of our sins, cancelled our debt, removed the legal requirements against us, setting them aside by nailing them to the cross. And Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, grace, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, truth, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved through faith. All of grace. And now truth. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift from God so that no one can boast. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. He is full of grace and truth. We have received of his fullness. We are to be like Christ, grow in his likeness, become more like him. We are to show compassion and love, mercy to each other, to the lost and perishing, to the outcasts, to the sinners. But we're also to call out sin and hypocrisy in our own lives and in each other's lives. And we're to bring conviction of sin to the sinner's life. Grace and truth. The Apostle John, he shows us the way. In John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, he tells us the reason he wrote the gospel. 
Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by leaving you might have life in his name. Now, if you notice, there's a progression through that statement. John tells the story of Jesus so that people will come to faith. And having come to faith, they begin to live the life that God has designed for, for them in full relationship with him. We are to tell the story of Jesus, but we have to do it like John does it. To do that with power and conviction that he does, we too must gaze intently into the face of Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And then it goes on to say, see the light of his glory and grace. You find it hard to witness and tell the good news to the gospel? How long do you spend looking at Jesus? Your faith is weak and faltering. Again, how much time do you spend gazing intently at Christ? Verse 18 of our reading says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. You want to know God, you have to get to know Jesus and he will reveal the Father to you, make him known to you. There is no other way to know God. Dismiss God's come, son coming into this world in the flesh. Dismiss Jesus, then you are totally without hope of knowing God. If you are without hope of knowing God, you are totally without hope. You live a hopeless life. Everything you do is hopeless. Looking intently at Jesus enables you to speak with conviction and boldness, hope and life into the desperate mere existence of unbelievers. We need to be enthusiastic and as diligent as the Apostle John is because the people who don't believe in Jesus' first coming, his first advent into the world as their saviour, will be shocked and horrified at his second coming, his second advent, when he comes in judgment and condemnation for their disbelief because they are without excuse. The evidence and the glory of God is all around them in his creation and from our witness to them. Grace and truth. Pray that your telling of the gospel story by the power of the Holy Spirit would lead people to faith and that they would experience life abundant in relationship with God the Father through his Son, the Word made flesh. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, as we come to celebrate this um, Christmas season, we do rejoice, Lord, that uh, we can still sing the old carols that uh, do tell of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We do thank you, Lord, for those men and women through centuries past who remain true to you and writing these carols. We just pray, our Heavenly Father, that uh, as we approach Christmas, that we might think on what it cost for you to send your Son from the heights of heaven to this earth. 
that you sent him, Lord, to his death. You sent him, Lord, to be covered and stained with the sins of the whole world. You sent him to die and to pay for those who believed in his name. And help us, Lord, to contemplate what it meant for Jesus so willingly to volunteer to come, that he was prepared to leave your side, he was prepared to leave that throne in glory and come to this speck of dust we call earth. And yet, Lord, he lived the life we could not live. He suffered everything that we suffer and more than what we can imagine. We can't imagine, Lord, what he's dying on that cross must have been like. We can't imagine what it was to take the punishment of all the sins of all who believe upon himself. Lord, it makes our hearts grow faint to think that we would stand before you and that he willingly went to the cross on our behalf to do just that. We pray, Lord, that Christmas would be very real to us this year, that we would celebrate the Lord Jesus Christ coming as a baby in a manger in Bethlehem, but that we would know, Lord, that this puts us under a massive obligation to you, our God, our sovereign Lord, our sovereign creator, our sovereign saviour. Help us, Lord, by your spirit to give you all the honour and glory that is due to your name. And help us, Lord, to be confident in this gospel that you've committed unto us as we speak and tell it to others. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.